it's important when you get to your New Year's Eve party to be armed with a good joke or two, so I'm going to give you one. What do sprinters eat before a race? (laughs) That's good, fast food. Nothing. They fast. Yeah. Okay, now, (laughs) before we go too far afield, as if we haven't already, let's jump into God's Word and look at a situation about fasting. Verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, please open it up. It says, now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, his disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, a little background on fasting in that Jewish culture. Okay, in the Old Testament, their law in Leviticus, one annual fast was prescribed in the actual law itself. It was the Day of Atonement. Now, one day a year when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. It was a day of repentance and brokenness over sin. Now, you get a little later in the Old Testament into the minor prophets, and some of them speak about four, four annual fasts. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Many of them fasted two times a week. You remember Jesus' parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector praying at the temple, and that's one of the things the Pharisee said, I thank you, Lord, that I fast twice a week. It was Monday and Thursday they fasted, not because the Old Testament prescribed it, because they they added it, and they got very self-righteous and proud about that and looked down on anyone else who didn't come along. So what would Jesus say? Why are his disciples not fasting? Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You get what he's saying? All through the Old Testament, there's this metaphor of God in Israel as the husband and the bride. And now Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. I am The bridegroom, they can't fast while I'm here. Imagine it. You're at a a wedding reception, maybe even at the big table up on the stage, and everybody's eating and partying, and you're sitting there. And somebody comes by and says, hey, why why aren't you eating? Oh, I'm fasting. What? Those are the kind of days, like you have your cheat days, or you... Your, your, your good days, excuse me, three days in advance so that you can have a feast at that wedding because it's time to party, right? You'd be sticking out like a sore thumb if you're fasting at a wedding reception. That's what Jesus is saying. It makes no sense for the disciples to fast. I'm here. It's, it's time to celebrate. It's time to, to feast. And when he used the term bridegroom, you, you heard that John the Baptist disciples were asking this too. Now, they likely had slightly different motives for fasting than the Pharisees. John's ministry was one of preparation for Jesus and repentance and brokenness over sin. So that's probably a good part of why they were fasting. Some suggest it's possible that they may have even been fasting if John was in prison at this time or had been executed. We surely don't know for sure about those last two. But when they heard Jesus say bridegroom, they would have thought back to 
something their own previous master, John, had said in chapter 3, verse 28, when, when they were freaking out because everybody's going to Jesus. John said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. They would have put it together and said, okay, okay, Jesus is the bridegroom. It makes sense. But some of these people in this group, especially of the Pharisees, would not be satisfied no matter how somebody acted. Do you have anybody like that in your life? No matter what you do, you're wrong. That's how some of these religious leaders were. Jesus confronted them on it. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 18, he says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I love how Jesus closes, though. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Some of us caught in that trap of trying to please everybody need to look at that last phrase. At some time or another, wisdom is going to be justified. Right deeds are going to be justified. Sometimes this side of eternity, but surely when we stand before the Lord. Stop trying to please everybody. Jesus, Jesus didn't, but he goes on. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, for Jesus' immediate group of disciples there, what do you think he was talking about the day the bridegroom will be taken away from them? Let me give you a hint. The same kind of verb is used in Isaiah 53. What are they talking about? The cross. The cross. The cross. He was arrested, taken away, and, and crucified, buried. John 16 in the upper room, he, he warns them about this. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you'll see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You remember they went and locked themselves in a room while the world rejoiced that this troublemaker was finally, finally crucified. But he said, your sorrow will turn into joy. And I want to bring this home to us, especially if you're thinking about fasting in the new year. What about us? Is it good to fast today? I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about timing and motivation. Timing. I want to start out with, with an idea that just because something is good and right in one situation doesn't mean it's automatically appropriate in every situation. Okay? We know it from Ecclesiastes 3, 4, and 5. For everything, there is a season. The turn, turn, turn was added centuries later. But verses 4 and 5 say there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So what about us today? Well, I want to start out by saying there's still great reason for joy in God's children. 
in 2020. God with us has become God in us. Think about that. Yes. And if you don't believe me, listen to some New Testament verses. Jesus said to his guys in the upper room, John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what Jesus wanted for his followers, that their joy would be full. Romans 14, 17. Paul says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. He prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 2 Corinthians 7, 4. Paul, a man who knew suffering in this dark world more than probably any of us in this room do. He said, I am overflowing with joy. I'm overflowing with joy. In Galatians 5.22, most of us know this one, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, yes, peace. So I want to ask us, if you're a Christian this morning, is your life characterized by the joy of God? When I wrote that question down, I started thinking about my own life and maybe you think about yours and what are the seasons where I don't have joy? What, what keeps me from enjoying the, the joy that God, God wants me to have? And sometimes I think there's a guilt. Sometimes it's, a, it's an illegitimate guilt. And what I mean by that is from the enemy. If you're a Christian, you, you've brought your sins to the cross. A lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. But sometimes what do we do? We, we, we go back and, and we pick it up and we want to carry that around. We, we feel like we, we should do that because of what we did. But really what we're doing is underestimating the great promise of God that those sins are washed away once and for all. And that keeps us from joy. When we go back and pick up things that Jesus has forgiven he doesn't want us to do that. You know who wants us to do that? Satan. That's right. That's why I love what my friend Will does when Satan reminds him of something he did in his past. He, he, he talks back. He says, you know what? You're right. I did do that. And let me tell you what I did with that sin. I took it to Jesus. I confessed it. I repented. I put my faith in Him and He washed it away. So you're, you're right that I did that. Thanks for reminding me that I already took that to the cross and it's dealt with. And then He moves on down the road. That's what we all need to do. Don't let guilt over past forgiven sins steal your joy. But I also think sometimes maybe some of us, whether we formulated this specifically or not, maybe we carry this underneath. Like, how could I walk around out there with, with joy when there's all these people out there around me that don't have the hope of Jesus. Like, I don't know, I just don't, I feel kind of guilty having this joy. But listen, I thought about it. That's kind of like somebody in a lifeboat in a stormy sea that, that floats by people who are drowning and, and saying, I feel guilty about being in a lifeboat because they don't have one, so I'm just going to jump in with them. 
This is stupid, right? What, what, what should the person in the lifeboat do? Utilize the lifeboat to its fullest, but also reach out their arm and say, look, there's a lifeboat here. Come in. Come to Jesus. The, the only time we should feel guilty about our joy is if we're not sharing it with a lost world out there that needs it. Don't feel guilty about having it. They need to see people that have joy in Jesus. Now there's that time for feasting and celebrating. But I see even in the New Testament for believers, there's a, there's a time for fasting. Many times when we fast, we do set aside something, food, television, cell phone, you name it, to, to connect with God. In, in the Bible, it was often associated with a brokenness over sin in my life that I need to confess and, and turn away from, a, a brokenness over current sin. Even in the New Testament, we see that in the book of James. James 4, he's, he's writing to the churches. James 4, 8, he says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. If you're a believer living in ongoing sin, there's a time to stop the laughing and the feasting and get down on your knees and mourn before the Lord. His intentions, even in that moment, are good. You see, in the end, it's to restore that fellowship. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So how do you know what time it is? Is it time to feast or is it time to fast in, in brokenness? Follow the Spirit within. Stay in God's Word and as He leads you, follow Him. Romans 8.13 not on your own. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You want to know when to feast or when to fast? Follow the Spirit. Stay in God's Word. Listen to Him. Now I want to talk to you about the motivation for fasting. Why do I fast? Because God cares a lot about the whys of what we do. Do you know that? He cares an awful lot about our motives and our heart, a lot more than people do. Don't let it be just an empty ritual. Okay? Because my calendar, I decided I'm going to do it once a week, so I'll, I'm going to do it that day. But then you don't really focus on God at all. You just do a bunch of other stuff. And Don't let it be just because it's on my calendar, I'm going to do it, but really it's not from my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's just a ritual. That's a waste of time. Jesus also gives some more reasons not to do it. Matthew 6.16. He's talking to his guys. He says, when you fast, Sermon on the Mount, so he's talking to a big group. When you fast, that, that tells us sometimes it's good. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What were these guys doing? These Pharisees and others, they, they were fasting, but they made sure that they looked miserable. 
They weren't taking care of themselves and they walked around probably looking very gloomy. Probably some of them hoping that, that Bill would say, what's wrong with you? So they could say, oh, I'm fasting. <laughs> For the second time this week. <laughs> Not to put on a show before others. Why? He says they've received their reward. If you're putting on a show and it's human recognition you want, God says that's all you're going to get. You're not getting any reward from me. You got your reward. Why should we do it? To spend focused time in relationship with my Father, who I love. Verse 17, when you fast, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, today, keep taking a shower. Keep putting on your regular clothes. So nobody can necessarily tell anything's different. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. At that point, it's all about the relationship with God. I'm not thinking about what these people out here think. I'm thinking about Him, right? Lastly, He wants us to fast with a total surrender of our hearts that says, God, anything in here you want to change, anything you want me to follow you in today, I will do it. Anything you want me to lay down, set aside, I'm in. Have your way. How do I know that? Because the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet writing to the nation of Israel. And they were doing a lot of the rituals, the sacrifices and the fast, but they were still under God's discipline and they're wrestling with it. Hey, we're doing the sacrifices. We're doing the fast. What gives here? God tells them what gives in Isaiah 58, starting at verse 3. They ask, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You ask God a question, you better be ready for an answer. <laughs> he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? What does he want? Verse 6, he goes on. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden 
like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Amen. God's about a whole lot more than just an occasional ritual in our lives. He wants our hearts. He wants our actions. He doesn't just want our Sunday morning. He wants our week. Now Jesus goes on to tell two of the shortest parables He told. We, we talked about fasting, timing, and motivation. We're going to close by talking about the old and the new through two awesome parables that Jesus gave us. The first one, 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. Okay. What's Jesus saying here? I, I paraphrase it like this. Jesus did not come to put a patch on an old shirt. Okay, he, he came to give us a brand new shirt, which is what I got on today from my in-laws in Ohio. He, he came to bring a whole new shirt. Okay, let me explain. He did not come to destroy the law. If you know your Bible, you know that. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. But he didn't come around to just tinker with it and patch it up a little either. Okay, just to add a couple things. You know what he did? He came to fulfill it. Fulfill it. It, it goes all through the Bible. Back when God talked to Abraham and said, through you I'm going to bless all the families on the earth. You know what Paul said about that moment? He, he said God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The good news of Jesus was already in mind because Jesus would come through Abraham's line and offer salvation to the world. Jesus came to fulfill it and to usher in an age of good news, the gospel. Okay? He also came to bring a new covenant. Jeremiah talks about it in chapter 31. Jesus talks about a new covenant in my blood in the upper room. Even at Christmas time, we, we hear about this good news of the, the new covenant, right? The joy. The, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They say, Well, what's the relationship between the law and the prophets in the Old Testament and Jesus? Paul breaks it down in Romans 3. It says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's a beautifully balanced verse. He says, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Why? Because you can't get it by keeping the law. You can't get it that way. So in that sense, it's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The entire law and prophets in the Old Testament all bore witness to Jesus Christ. You want a study worth a lifetime? Study that. <laughs> Look at how the whole Bible points forward to Jesus Christ. Anybody ever plant an oak tree from an acorn? Nobody. This is Arizona. This is not the Midwest anymore. <laughs> Warren Wiersbe talked about that. He said there's two ways to destroy an acorn. One is to take a hammer to it, smash it, 
One is to plant that acorn in the ground and allow it to open up and, and be fulfilled, to become the oak tree that it was meant to be. And then he drew the analogy. He said, Jesus did not smash the Old Testament law and prophets. He fulfilled them. He is the oak tree, the fulfillment. So what's it mean to put a patch on, which Jesus did not come to do? I think that's when we try to add Jesus to our other efforts in order to get to God. We're going to add him to the mix. Right? He's just going to help us. That's what's going on in Galatia, right? They didn't think Jesus was enough. There's a group of men going around saying, you have to be circumcised according to the Old Testament law. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. And Paul went and told them that's a different gospel, and anybody who preaches a different gospel than the one he received is accursed. That's how strongly Paul felt about it. Jesus did not come to be added. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3.10. Here's the patch. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You ever wonder why Paul says those who rely on works of the law are under a curse? Because you've got to keep the whole thing. And not one of us can. The Bible tells us we break it at one point. We're guilty before a holy God. He goes on in verse 11, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. What's the new garment? He says, for the righteous shall live by faith. He goes on, listen to this. This is the new garment. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what this cross was all about. Your sin, my sin was on him. He became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Why the law then, Paul says? If that's where it was pointing, why did he give the law? Paul says it was added because of transgressions, sins, until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made. Who is that offspring? Jesus. We just celebrated Christmas, right? Now listen to this, verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. When it says the law was our guardian, some translate that word as tutor. When you look at the law, you see a few things. You see the, the holiness and righteousness and awesomeness of God because it reflects His character. We also see the many ways we fall short. And what the law does, like a good tutor, is it takes us where we need to go. It says, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Let me lead you to the cross. That's what the law was for, to lead us to our need for a Savior. So you say, what's this new garment? Look at verse 27. In Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ 
have put on Christ. <laughs> our, our new garment is not our own efforts to, to try better to keep God's law. It's not our own resolutions for 2021 that we're going to grit our teeth and try in our own power. Our new garment is Jesus Christ Himself. If you've come to Him in repentance and faith. He is our new garment. Listen to this in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Our new garment is Christ himself. He was the one mentioned in Isaiah 61. Now, it's almost New Year's Eve. Who wants to talk about wine? <laughs> Everybody's afraid to say amen. All right. <laughs> Listen to verse 22. Jesus says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Now, I don't know if any of you use wine skins or not today. Back then, they used goat skins. And what would happen over time is they lost their elasticity, and they would become crusty and brittle. But Jesus is talking about new wine here. He says... You, no one puts it in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, right? So what's the new wine? Think about new wine. you got yeast going in there. It activates and creates gases that, that expand. It grows. And new wine is, is the good news in Jesus, okay? That's the, the new wine. These old wineskins, as I mentioned, over time, they dry out. They're in the Middle East. They become crusty and brittle, which is exactly what many of the Pharisees became in their religion, as they added more and more and more man-made rules and traditions to what God had written, and then tried to keep them in their own self-power, and then walked around in their own self-righteousness and pride. That was all crusty, all brittle. You cannot combine Jesus with, with that. What's the new wineskin then? that we receive the gospel. And if it's not self-righteousness and adding our own rules and all that, you know what the new wineskin is? You receive the new wine through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ and walking in the power of the Spirit. That's how you receive what He wants to do in your life. That's the, the new wineskin. Faith in Christ. Galatians 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's this idea that not only did I receive forgiveness of sins when I came to Christ, He came to live in me, and as I rely on Him, He will live His life through me. I heard one man explain this idea this way. It's one thing if Mario Andretti came to you and said, Hey, uh, you can uh, take my car down to the track, and I'll let you drive it in the race today. Give it a whirl. 
<laughs> Good luck, right? Especially if you've never been in a machine like that. But wouldn't it be a whole different thing if Mario Andretti said, not only do you get to use my car, but I'm going to enter into your body. And I'm going to drive that car through you. That's a whole different ball game, right? Jesus lives in the believer, whether you know it or not. And, and Paul says right here, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It means we rely on His power to live this new gospel life. Okay, and what about the power of the Spirit? He's, he's compared to wine in Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Aaron had this a few months ago, and he did a good job bringing out how when you're drunk on wine, you do all kinds of things that aren't natural to you. Many folks, you know, they crash their car, they, they break stuff, they, they yell at people they love, and go on and on. But be filled with the Spirit. When you get filled with the Spirit, you start to do things that aren't natural to you and your own self. But, but they're not the kinds of things I mentioned, the works of the flesh. It's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things start to take over because it's Him living within us. So having looked at fasting and old versus new, I thought there'd be no better way to spend the end of this service as we stand on the brink of 2021 for you to have just three or four minutes alone with God. I want you to talk to Him about a few things. You follow His lead, obviously, but I'll throw out a couple suggestions. Going back to the fasting at the beginning, I want you to talk with God. What, what time is it in my life right now? Is it time for me to feast or, or fast? Lead me, Lord, into what you'd have me to do. Time to repent or, or feast. I want you to think about the, the patch and the garment and, and go before him and sit. ask him to show you, have I been trying to put a patch on an old garment in my life or have I received by faith the garment of Christ? If you're, if you're finding frustration and futility is, is commonplace in your Christian walk, it could be that you're trying to do that patch. Ask him. Last but not least, are you trying to put the new wine of Jesus in those old wineskins of your own effort? Like you read about Jesus and you're like, I want to try to be like him. Or how, however it looks. Or pride or, or anything like that. Or are you receiving the good news of Jesus in simple faith? And then walk in the Christian life out in the power of the Spirit. I want you to talk with Him about that. And ask Him to lead you in those things as we march into the next year. Father, I pray right now for a special time of talking and following Your lead. May, may the Christians in this room be a group of people who, who pour out their hearts before You and are totally open to whatever You want to lead us in. That we would be led by the Spirit of God. I also pray that if there's anyone here that says, I haven't come to this Savior who brings this new wine and I need a relationship with Him, would you draw them home? Let them know the gift of the cross and the resurrection is for them this morning. Bring them home. Bless this time in Jesus' name.
Amen.